0: Hi, this is Zane Horowitz and everyone at the Oregon Poison Center for the May 2010 Journal Club, and today we are talking about mostly a, a single uh, pharmaceutical product called propofol which has only really been available on the market for about a year or so. It's got some interesting properties, and it's sort of the whole background story, which we'll cover in pieces. has all the great things of intrigue and pharmaceutical company takeovers and infighting among specialties and letters to the editor and retraction of articles and all that stuff that makes for a good juicy journal club here. So why are we even talking about this substance is that recently uh, the Center for Medicaid and uh, Medicare issued a letter vastly revising how we approach what was previously known as conscious sedation, and sort of banishing that term from our usage. We'll talk about what terms we'll be replacing it. And um, making the use of sedative agents for procedural um, care in the emergency room or anywhere in the hospital completely under the guise and appropriate uh, privileging of the Department of Anesthesia. So there's all sorts of changes happening in hospitals, big and small, around the country as far as that goes. In response to that, the American College of Emergency Physicians, in a rare synergy with FAAEM and the Emergency Nurses Association, that synergy wasn't so rare. But the sort of agreeing with FAAEM on something was a little bit more um, uh, unusual. They sent a letter to the director of CMMs, the people who sent the initial letter, saying, "Wait a minute here. Um, you know, we use sedation safely for procedures all the time in the emergency room, and the drug." which is in the middle of this controversy, which is propofol, which we've used for many years and quite safely, is that issue to perhaps being taken away from our armamentarium. And they give some examples of where you don't have time to have two separate people doing things and someone comes in with massive facial injuries or a dislocated hip or needs emerging cardioversion, as the examples they give, they may need a rapid intervention where a single physician is doing both the sedation and the procedure. So this issue is going to come up. On top of that, that's sort of the legislative uh, layer. We have the pharmacoeconomic uh, layer. There are three companies in the United States that currently manufacture uh, propofol. Um, AAP, Tiva and Hospira. Several of those have had problems with microbial contamination, metal contamination, and just plain hard to bring the drug to the market to the point. Where, even though we were screaming about all those years about not taking drugs from other parts of the world before they're approved, they allowed an exception to take a slightly different product, um, which is um, a propofol like, very much propofol like drug that's made in Europe to help shore up the shortage of supply. This is Propovin, which is somewhat different than Diprovin, which is a trade name for propofol. So we have a drug that's being restricted in its use by the regulatory agencies. We have a supply side shortage of propofol. We have a drug that's made outside the United States being used. And into that gap will fall the drug we're talking today, which is phosphopropofol, the drug, which in and of itself has several interesting uh, pieces of information occur with it. So before that we set up the straw man, per se, I think we're going to talk about two articles about propofol and how well it works and what sort of complications are associated with it. And I'm actually going to start with the complication side of things this time and talk about something because we advise a lot of times as toxicologists, put people who are severely agitated on a propofol infusion, and one of the risks of that is uh, the Prist syndrome, propofol infusion syndrome, which we've certainly seen in pediatrics, but this is a larger review in a different population that may be important to us as well. So I'm going to start off and have Keith, our fellow, talk about press. Thank
1: you, Zay. So this is an article that came out of uh, the Critical Care uh, Medicine Journal in 2009. Uh, there are actually two separate goals of this uh, paper. The first goal is to basically describe and assess the frequency of Pris, the propofol infusion syndrome, in patients on propofol infusions specifically for the indication of refractory status epilepticus, which I will define for briefly. The secondary objective is that this is actually a seeing article, and so the reader is encouraged uh, to be able to accomplish the following things following this article. One is to explain the indications for propofol which actually, ironically, is not very well described in this CME article. <laughs> Two to defy, to describe the propofol infusion syndrome, which is actually very well described, but something that we can discuss when we get to the criteria here shortly, and to be able to use this information in a clinical setting which is really hard to assess after reading a three-page three page, uh, uh, article. So this is a retrospective design. It is an outcome assessment <clears throat> article, and specifically looking at ICU patients with refractory status epilepticus um, either on or not on propofol infusions. Uh, they found 41 patients looking consecutively in those admitted to their ICU over an 11-year period. The majority of the patients uh, were male. Uh, 31 of the 41 patients were actually on propofol, and this is labeled as the propofol group, versus 10 patients who did not receive this medication. They were in the non-propofol group, and an important um, note is that patients in the propofol group may have also had other medications used to treat their uh, seizures other than propofol. It mentioned that the syndrome has been previously reported, and they used the definition as previously reported, uh, to find the patients who met criteria. in this study, they didn't redefine uh, or restructure the definition. Um, Fourteen of the 35 patients or excuse me, or the 31 patients in the propofol group had features of PRIS. So just under half of the patients uh, developed this syndrome. Three of the patients who had PRIS actually had sudden cardiac arrest. Two of those patients died. None of the criteria used to define PRIS were noted in the propofol group. Uh, of note, the median duration of propofol infusion in the uh, group, in the PRIS group, was uh, 63 hours. So we're talking several days on propofol infusions uh, before this syndrome was noted in the majority of patients in the study. So as mentioned, uh, this is specifically looking at the syndrome in those patients with refractory status epilepticus, not for any other indication that you would use for for, for. Uh, Interesting definition of status epilepticus is any seizure lasting greater than five minutes or any seizure that's associated with repetitive seizures before recovery of... um, uh, Baseline mental status. That is, I think, a debatable definition, one that is probably a very conservative uh, estimation. We've actually used this definition in prior journal clubs, but may not be consistent with everyone um, else's interpretation of what truly defines status epilepticus. They define refractory status epilepticus as those patients who continue to seize despite treatment with first and second line agents which is generally a benzo, and then seems to be, though not very well described here, uh, phosphonatoin um, uh, in that scenario. Uh, It goes on further to really describe propofol. It gets two sentences. It basically mentions that it's used for uh, general anesthesia. It's a sedative. It's an anesthetic. It's an anti-epileptic agent that was first um, approved by the FDA in 1989, Uh, And that's really all it mentions about indications uh, for its use. The problem is that soon after the approval by the FDA in the pediatric literature, several deaths were reported following that there became more and more reports of deaths in adults, but more on the sort of case report basis, not initially any large case series. They noted that in all of these patients, they shared common features, metabolic acidosis, lactic acidosis, refractory bradycardia, rhabdomyolysis, renal failure, lipemia, hyperkalemia, and other quote-unquote uh, arrhythmias. All of these features, it is important to denote, must be unexplained, which is one of the criticisms and limitations of this paper when you describe propofolin fusion syndrome. It's hard to find a patient who's been seizing for three days, who doesn't have some degree of rhabdo or some degree of acidosis. So these are common features in folks who are sick at baseline, so ascribing them to the propofol can be sometimes tricky, but those are the features that must be present to uh, ascribe uh, the term propofol infusion syndrome. So looking through the results here, I should mention just briefly, table one uh, describes and sort of lists out, some of the criteria for this syndrome. And really, if you look through them, they're kind of interesting, and I don't like to use the word wimpy, but some of the criteria are kind of wimpy. So a metabolic acidosis, so a serum bicarb less than 22 means you have propofol infusion syndrome based on these criteria. A CK elevated greater than 176 means you have propofol infusion syndrome based on these criteria. Potassium of 5.3. Increased premature ventricular contractions. So, if you have no premature ventricular contractions, you get on propofol for a couple days, and you have one or two, which is by definition an increase in PVCs. You have the syndrome, at least the way I read this chart. So, the criteria are not very robust, and there is not an explanation of all of the thirty-one patients on the propofol uh, drip specifically to see sort of how each one fits in this specific category. The results are laid out in tables two through five. Table two basically just lists the general characteristics of the propofol group, of 31 versus the non-propofol group, of 10 And you'll see that there are statistic differences in the mean age and weight in the non-propofol group. And I think that's probably easy, easily explained by the fact that there were four patients in the non-propofol group who were children. They make a specific note that none of the children with refractory status epilepticus received propofol, probably because of the known association with propofol infusion syndrome. So they didn't even put them in the group. But I think that probably skews at least the baseline characteristics and brings the average or mean weight and age down uh, between those two groups. Uh, Table 3 looks at uh, characteristics um, among... Uh, the PRIS group and non PRIS group in terms of hospital care and length of stay. Not surprisingly, the folks who ended up with the PRIS syndrome te- seemed to be a little bit sicker um, and had a st- statistically significant increases in ICU stay and overall hospital length of stay. Table 4 looks at um, total um, propofol dosing and infusion. Times among the press group and non-press group, and there was a statistical difference in the rate of propofol, the total cumulative dose of propofol, the total infusion time of propofol, and the infusion rate of propofol in the press versus non-press groups. And lastly, Table five looks at the patients who were in the press group or who developed press. And they tease them out amongst the cardiac arrest victims and the non cardiac arrest victims to see if there's something different among this group. And though, in um, the body of the paper, they mentioned that there was no statistical difference in the infusion rates among these groups, this table actually shows that there was a statistical difference in the total dose and infusion rate among cardiac arrest and non cardiac arrest victims. But there is a special subnote with the letter B in some of those results, but the, the note is not defined. So I don't know what that little asterisk means. Yeah. It just brings the attention to those statistical differences but doesn't define what they have uh, associated with them. So that's the, the main sort of results. They make a couple other notes here that uh, the overall mortality, at least based on this study, was 6% if you developed press, There was a 10% incidence of Sudden cardiac arrest if you developed PRIS. Um, that was essentially the bulk of the results. The discus- discussion is that PRIS is usually associated with folks who are on high doses of propofol for prolonged periods of time because refractory status epilepticus is unique in its necessity to have to provide large doses of propofol to suppress uh, the seizures. However, there is a growing body of evidence and literature which are referenced in this article demonstrating cases of where folks develop the syndrome while not on uh, high doses and not during prolonged periods of time. Pris is probably underreported, as are most conditions. Um, And uh, they do mention just briefly a couple of limitations, uh, that it's a small study size, the... Definition of PRIS is somewhat controversial, and one note that I thought that was interesting in regards to the sudden cardiac arrest, and they don't spend a whole lot of time here is that QTC prolongation is reported in propofol use, so is bradycardia, and so QTC prolongation becomes a problem often during bradycardia, and at least one of the patients' ventricular dysrhythmia during their cardiac arrest was torsades. And so in my mind, it seems that there may be an association with sudden cardiac arrest with torsades, given that Q2C prolongation and bradycardia are both potential side effects of the syndrome. And I'll leave it at that.
0: Yeah, it's a a good summary of what I still would consider a relatively rare complication. It took them 11 years at a major medical center, in this case I believe it turned out to be the Mayo Clinic, to find 41 patients with very liberal criteria, as you pointed out, to meet this infusion syndrome, and really the ones who got Pris syndrome with acidosis tended to be sicker and higher infusion rates, and the ones who die tended to be even sicker and higher infusion rates than those. Um, but they found a 6% mortality rate of the ones they identified. So it's it's something we should be aware of. We're, we're not in the emergency department going to be putting patients on drugs for uh, anywhere near this length of time or anywhere near this length of doses. We're usually doing short sedations or intubations with this drug. But nonetheless... This new sort of legislative threat is out there that we may not be able to continue to use propofol in all emergency departments if individual departments of anesthesia now continue to restrict its use just to um, monitored anesthesia care. So is there an alternative we can use out there that makes sense? So um, different parts of the country sometimes use the drug Etomidate. So reviewing an article on a head-to-head comparison of Etomidate with propofol to see if there is a Better drug out there? It's Rob.
2: Thanks, Amy. Uh, I'll be reviewing an article entitled Randomized Clinical Trials to Accommodate versus Footfall for Procedural Sedation in the Emergency Department. It's a paper in um, Annals of Emergency Medicine 2007. Um, lead author is James Minor, and other author, authors are DeHaney, Mock, and Viros. Um, this paper really discusses um, all alternatives for procedural sedation. Certainly, procedural sedation is a fairly common thing to do in the emergency department. Um, some procedures require moderate sedation, which um, is sometimes defined as uh, sedation of a patient that they maintain their airway reflexes, but they still respond to verbal stimuli. And that's what Zane was referring to before from when we used to say conscious sedation. And some procedures require deep sedation, which is Uh, maintains their airway reflexes, um, but they only respond to pain. Um, And of course, the ideal sedative agent for many of these procedures would be something that's very rapid onset, very rapid offset, with a minimum of side effects, including hypotension and uh, apnea or the need for airway intervention. So two very commonly used sedative agents are etomidate and propofol, and I think um, these are probably the two most common for short procedures. Um, however, they have never been compared in a randomized controlled trial. So just a very brief review. Um, propofol has an onset of action of about 45 seconds. Atominate has an onset of action of about a minute, so pretty darn similar. Um, propofol begins to redistribute from the blood. into fat and muscle in about three to five minutes. So its onset, I'm sorry, its uh, duration of effect is about five minutes. And etomidate has a slightly longer duration of action, five to fifteen minutes, and of course these always depend on the dose that you used. Um, finally, etomidate is considered to have the least hemodynamic effect of any of the sedative agents that are commonly used in procedural sedation. So, um, these have never been uh, uh, there's never been a trial to compare these two before. So this trial was a prospective, randomized, non-blinded clinical trial. For ED procedural sedation of patients undergoing painful procedures. And um, it was adults ages greater than 18. They excluded reasonable patients, those who were unable to give consent, those who had known hypersensitivity to the medications, those who were pregnant. Those were clinical evidence of intoxication. And finally, those um, who had an ASA, physical assessment score, greater than two, which basically means they had some systemic illness that limited their function in some way. Some, someone with COPD or CHF that has limited function, which seems like a reasonable person to leave out of a clinical trial. Um, they did the standard uh, procedural sedation monitoring with cardiac and blood pressure and pulse ox and tidal CO2. They also added a bispectral EEG to monitor the level of awareness of the patient. And they were randomized to two drugs, one of Propofol, a pretty standard protocol, one milligram per kilo bolus, followed by 0.5 milligrams per kilo every three minutes as needed for sedation, which is pretty standard. Um, Atomidate, the protocol was not entirely standard, as uh, and I think that their physicians actually didn't end up following the protocol very well. Um, but they recommended 0.1 milligram per kilo, followed by half of that dose, 0.05 milligrams per kilo every three to five minutes as needed. I think most uh, people using uh, Tomidate are using the half, uh, half-intubating dose of 10 milligrams for most large, uh, 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 you know, medium-sized um, males or large uh, females and a slightly lower dose, which would be up upper- to more like 0.15 milligrams per kilo, which is, as we'll see in a minute, exactly what people started with. So they had a couple of outcome measures. I'll spend just a minute talking about them because they're pretty interesting. They defined something called a subclinical respiratory depression, which is a composite score. Uh, and they're, what they're trying to do here is trying to define a subclinical depression of respiratory effort that might be able to predict people who actually get actual respiratory depression. Um, and they defined this as an oxygen saturation less than 92, um, airway obstruction um, of any duration, and that was noted by an absence of end CO2 waveform. Um, and then finally, uh, change in, in baseline end CO2 of greater than 10. And they defined that as either an increase, and they presumed increase in end CO2 was hypercapnia. In other words, they didn't obstruct, but they were, um, had decreased respiratory drive and were becoming hypercapnic. And they, def- they presumed that a decrease in entitled CO2 was obstruction with um, – so the entitled CO2 monitor was just measuring ambient air, which obviously has a very low uh, CO2 content. So they basically did their sedation, and then they asked the physician afterwards about things that they had to do during the procedure – bag mask, valve mask, uh, ventilation, reposition of the airway, stimulation. They asked them about myoclonus. They asked them about complications – um, and they did this, uh, they monitored this with the research assistant standing at the bedside. Um, I'm sorry, they asked that physicians after words about those things. Um, but they also had a, uh, research assistant standing at the bedside monitoring all of the vital signs every minute and then also looking for depth of sedation and they measured depth of sedation with a bispectral index monitor or a monitor, uh, and also, uh, using an observer's assessment of alertness score, which is basically just a five-point score that says they respond to voice, they respond to pain, or they don't respond at all. And they did that every minute. So they powered their study to detect, this is pretty large change in respiratory depression. They assumed that there would be a 30% risk of respiratory depression, and that they powered their study to detect a 20% absolute difference in the proportion of patients with respiratory depression. So... Um, they were looking for a pretty large change. Well, they found 296 patients that met the inclusion criteria. They uh, had this sort of standard group of people who were missed for enrollment or refused consent, and they ended up with 226 who were fairly equally uh, split between the two groups. So the procedures they used this for were almost entirely IND of abscesses, fracture reduction, and dislocation reduction. There's, There's a just a couple of other things that they used it for, but not, nothing of any significance. And all the people had similar characteristics and demographics. Um, the total time of their mean mean time of their procedure was 10 minutes in both groups. So pretty short procedures. Uh, we're not talking about uh, long, prolonged procedures. So what did they find? Well, the first of all, they used they, they found that um, the groups were pretty similar as far as the dosing. The Atomidate group got a much higher um, dose first dose than they were supposed to. Instead of 0.1, they got 0.15 as a mean with a pretty tight um, confidence interval. So I think most people were dosing at 0.15, uh, and most people got 2.4 to 2.8 doses of atominate or propofol Pretty similar. So what they found was no difference between the two groups in absolute change of N-tile CO2, no change, no difference in desaturations. No difference in ba- in a bag valve mask, ventilation, airway positioning, increased supplemental oxygen, uh, or need to stimulate to induce breathing. So really no change in apnea or hypoxic events. Um, time to baseline of mental status after completion was almost the same. It was 8.8 minutes with Atomidate, 6.8 minutes with Propofol. Two minutes probably not very clinically relevant. What they did find, some differences, some statistical and some... I find to be fairly uh, clinically potentially significant, but not statistically significant. Subclinical respiratory depression they found in 34% of a group and 42% of the propofol group for an absolute difference of 8%. That falls well below what they were powered to detect, so it's not statistically significant, but um, maybe clinically significant. I'll let the readers decide for themselves. Um, they also found that propofol had a higher rate of change in entitled CO2 of greater than 10 millimeters. The, difference, the absolute difference was 11%, uh, and also um, had a higher incidence of apnea, as defined as a loss of the entitled CO2 waveform, 11% of the propofol group versus 5 in the etomidate group. And finally, just a few, probably the most important thing, 20% of patients who got etomidate had myoclonus. And um, interestingly, 2% of the propofol group had myoclonus. They had two patients who uh, they had myoclonus with propofol. But that's a pretty big percentage, 20%, um, which is pretty consistent with previous literature as well. And probably the most important uh, piece of information is that a successful procedure was performed in 97% of the patients who got propofol and only 89% of the people who got otomidate. They looked at whether the patients... didn't have a successful procedure had myoclonus it turns out that of the 11 people who had an unsuccessful procedure only four had myoclonus so there's still seven out there that had a uh, and if you add that myoclonus group back in it's still a uh, there's more unsuccessful procedures with autonomy they don't get into any details about why it was an unsuccessful procedure i'm very interested in that group but i they just don't have any information Find a little bit more. They looked at the subclinical respiratory um, detection and whether it predicted actual respiratory depression. And it turns out it does. So it might turn out to be a pretty interesting uh, um, uh, 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 complex score, uh, uh, group of scores that we could put together. People who required supplemental oxygen were slightly higher in the uh, respiratory depress- subclinical respiratory depression group. I'll just quote the numbers for atomidate because they're pretty similar: eight versus six percent. All the patients who needed bag valve mask ventilation had subclinical respiratory depression, and most, uh, more people who required airway positioning or stimulation uh, uh, had subclinical respiratory depression. What's I think interesting about that uh, states table three for people who are following on. What's interesting is that ten percent of people who had no subclinical respiratory depression actually got airway repositioning, and 6% needed stimulation to uh, induce their breathing and 6% required supplemental oxygen, which kind of tells me that um, we have to start paying attention more to the monitoring um, and that, one, the monitoring may not pick up events that we're picking up, but also that we may be actually intervening a lot more often than we need to um, if they're not having obstruction with the n CO2 monitor, they probably didn't need airway repositioning, which I thought was sort of an interesting uh, note. And finally, they talked to the patients afterwards, and they asked them about pain during the procedure and satisfaction with the procedure, which were almost identical between the two groups. Um, one thing that was different with the interview after, which I was very surprised at, was that more patients... Uh, in the etomidate group reported recall of the procedure than with propofol so um, the on the visual analog scale uh one to a hundred millimeters 20 the mean was 24 for recall of any any event during the procedure for etomidate and 16 for propofol um so in summary i think both this study kind of proves that both are pretty safe and effective that propofol um You know, I think they they conclude that propofol might be a better sedative agent, but I think uh, I have more faith in us being savvy clinicians, and I think that you can pick and choose. I think what this says is that both are safe and effective in their um, unique circumstances. Propofol, you have to understand that you have a higher rate of apnea, higher rate of respiratory depression, and a higher rate of hypotension. In etomidate, you will have a likely decreased success rate. But also an increased uh, rate of myoclonus and an increased re- re- uh, excuse me an increased rate of patients having recall of the events. So, what I'm really waiting for is propidate <laughs> or thalimafol, which will be our next combination <laughs> sedative <laughs> agent.
0: Yeah, no, I think there's a move, and one of the articles I left out of the stack was a ketopropylfall combination, ketamine propofol. and we can kind of look at all the different articles that were written. But I just basically put this in, because there's a pretty good head-to-head comparison of two drugs, I think, that are in widespread use for procedural sedation, if I can use that term. I think that's the well we get into this linguistic battle that has emerged between the emergency physicians and the anesthesiologists. A couple of points, I think we can all agree looking back at this article that these patients had deep sedation. Um, Their, you know, observer scores dropped down to one as general as opposed to five being alert, ones being hard to arouse, 10 10 to 13% of them need some sort of stimulation to breathe during the procedure, their bi-spectral. Um, levels drop down to the 60s, and they say if you get it below 90, you have amnesia, and if you get it below 70, you're about as close to general anesthesia as probably you need to be. So, the argument I think that's been raised and why this sort of legislative battle is maybe starting is that anesthesiologists are now saying, Hey, you guys are doing general anesthesia down there. Maybe five minutes of general anesthesia, but it worries us some. These patients are deep, they need rescue techniques, and I think most of us can agree that we're, most of, well, all of us are capable of the rescue techniques and handle these appropriately, and the patients seem to do well. So we kind of blended the two terms, deep sedation, moderate sedation, and the procedural sedation, saying we'll sedate you as deeply as we need to to get the procedure done as painful and uncomfortable as it may be, so you tolerate it and have good satisfaction scores. um, But doing that, we realize that there's going to be some maneuvers we need to do to rescue you and keep your
3: breathing, keep your saturations um, going. So, I, I did, this Bob Norton, and I think that your point is an excellent one in, in face of what the CMS regulations are saying, and as an emergency wow. physician, I have some trouble with the regulations as they're out now out there and want to be able to use propofol, but in fact, the the rate of deep sedation for this study was 30 to 42%. And so, and this study was done in a uh, hospital with an emergency medicine training program. So one can assume that there was probably an attending or chief resident involved as well as another physician. Um, And what CMS is saying is that if you're going to use this drug, you do have to have two physicians uh, yeah, for the procedure. One to monitor the patient with the sedation to do the rescue procedures or whatever is needed for the breathing and one to do the procedure. And that's where we have to look at that and see how we're going to respond to it because for the gastroenterologist who may be trying to use propofol to do colonoscopy to have to leave one end of the bed to go to the other end of the bed <laughs> to manage this deep sedation is definitely a uh, patient safety risk. And I think that has to be addressed. And that's part of the reason CMS is taking the approach that they are taking. Right. And I
0: think we're, we're going to cover that article with colonoscopy soon, but uh see where that goes. So, so we now have the battle lines have been dr- drawn and the stage has been set. We have a drug we've been using for 20 years, it's not a perfect drug, but it's a pretty darn good drug. We've known how to use it. Um, it can cause problems with over-sedation. It can cause problems with occasional myoclonus, uh, as we've seen. And um, the biggest problem seems to be we really need two people to be there, two licensed providers, if I can use that term, to be there when you're using this drug, one person concentrating on the sedation and one person concentrating on the procedure, and it's easy to do. In a big place, in a little place, single coverage, it's hard to do. So I'm going to define a couple of new terms that I think all of us are going to hear a, a lot about. And the first, I'm going to review an article called Monitored Anesthesia Care Sedation. I'm going to talk a little bit about phosphopropyl by Harris, Labarsky and Ken Danotti. They're a bunch of anesthesiologists out of Miami Medical Center. And as part of introduction, they, right out of the bat, say we need to, to get rid of this arcane term, conscious sedation. Although it's been generally accepted before, um, let's really define things moderate sedation, as defined by the American Society of Anesthesiologists, requires that the patient be arousable to verbal commands, and the airway is patent, and they have stable cardiac and respiratory functions throughout the sedation. And so it's not synonymous with what we're now going to say is monitored sedation. Monitored anesthetic care, or MAC, is, it needs to be reformed under the direction of an anesthesiologist, that that line is a little bit untrue, we'll find out in a second, Um, and the scope of it requires, um, you know, according to their table, it kind of covers the deeps, what we previously called deep sedation and general anesthesia, where the depth of consciousness is deeper, they cannot be easily aroused purposefully, except maybe by painful stimulation, they are able to independently maintain their ventilatory function, although it may become impaired, and they may require assistance in maintaining a spontaneous airway. It may become inadequate, although the cardiovascular function is uh, maintained. So it's sort of, a, again, a step between that and general anesthesia, but they're blending those two terms together. Um, in order to do MAC, which is both deep sedation and general anesthesia, um, they say you have to do a pre-op assessment. Um, a... Have The anesthesiologist or the person providing the sedation uh, has to do be there during the care, has to have a care plan, and in some interpretations have to actually personally administer the drugs, have the ability to rescue the patient from unintended deep sedation and unintended general anesthesia, and then has to also do a post-op assessment of the patient's recovery. Um, so there's a lot of drugs we talked about, hypnotic agents that may be employed for that fall under the rubric now of MAC to provide deep anesthesia, analgesia, propofol is one of them, accommodates certainly another, and phosphopropofol we'll talk about in a second um, is is the other one we'll talk about. There's probably uses of other drugs that are more uh, uh, archaic, such as uh, barbiturates that potentially could fall under this new definition as well. So propofol has been around since 1986. It has a trade named Diprovan, which is a shortened version of diisopropyl IV anesthetic, so Diprovan. Uh, was marketed originally just for induction of general anesthesia, but we quickly found an off-label use for it in what we now refer to as procedural sedation or monitored anesthesia care. And it seems to become the drug of choice for a variety of things in the emergency department, in the ICU, for colonoscopies, for cardioversion, transesophageal, echoes and so it's gradually replaced some drugs that have thankfully fallen into uh history such as the dpt cocktail uh thorazine um, and a variety of other things that we've used but it's not a drug that's uh completely um free of problems it's got some unwanted side effects it is painful to inject and many patients will say it hurts before they finally pass out 40 seconds later um, and you can't really uh, relieve that pain by just adding lidocaine beforehand, although they recommend a suggested technique, which I think is of interest. It's almost like a mini beer block technique where you put a tourniquet up first, you give a little lidocaine in the vein, let it sit there for a minute or two, and then you give the propofol and let the <clears throat> as, as, after you let the tourniquet down and so it's almost like a little beer block letting a little lidocaine sit in the vein you're about to administer it. But they say that's the only reliable technique to reduce the pain of injection. We mentioned the rare propofol infusion syndrome with acidosis, and renal failure, and rhabdo. The other big problem with propofol, as anyone who's given milk amnesia knows, it's in a lipid emulsion, which is hard to store, hard to maintain sterility, has a short window of usage once you get it out of the pharmacy, um, and people, uh, it can induce hypertriglyceridemia transiently in patients, which which doesn't have an acute effect, but may interfere with some lab tests and may interfere with some other issues that are going on. And again, it should be used, like they say, in trained hands, which is probably the best terminology that they use in this article. Um, it does cause dose-dependent hemodynamic problems and loss of airway protective reflexes. So that brings us to Maybe there's something better along, and in fact, uh, this new drug, which is the bulk of what we're talking about, is fospropofol. It is a aqueous form, so you don't have to worry about the lipid emulsion anymore. It's a prodrug, so you give it as this polyphosphate monoester, and the phosphate form is cleaved off, and you're left with three molecules. You're left with propofol itself. Uh, formaldehyde, which isn't necessarily a good thing, but it's transient and goes away, and phosphate, which also can cause some problems. Um, the new drug was originally called Aquavan, but then through a series of corporate takeovers, it now has a new name called Lucenda. is manufactured by a different drug company. Um, and the formaldehyde that's generated is converted to formate, which could be a problem. So let's look at some of the Three clinical use trials to set up the next two studies we're going to talk about. Now I'm going to have to put in an editorial comment here. A lot of these trials that I'm going to talk about were based on levels that were obtained um, for the trial by a single uh, lab. And there was a letter written in three anesthesia journals where many of these were published retracting all of these articles because of the unreliability of all of this data. So everything I'm going to tell you has to be taken with a little grain of salt and we'll get to where some of it's important. Some of the clinical stuff, though, I think is is valuable. Um, So usually we think of a dual compartment model where you give a drug, it goes into the serum, some of it it moves across into the blood-brain barrier, another lipid-soluble area. So propofol fits that pretty good. Now we have a drug that does several things like phosphopropofol. It goes into the serum. It doesn't have a large volume of distribution. It stays there, and then it's cleaved. So the phosphopropofol dr- the is there, but it's cleaved in the propofol, and propofol has a two-compartment model. So it's like a delayed-onset two-compartment model. So its kinetics are a little bit complicated. It's got a biphasic elimination, and it's got a steep uh, initial decline representing fast elimination and then a slower secondary decline. Um, and um, once ph- propofol is, limited, is created, it pretty much follows what propofol does. So basically this drug, to sum up, is a little bit slower onset, a little bit longer duration, and a little bit slower offset than propofol. So maybe that's a good thing for procedures that are going to last um, a little bit longer. Um, so pharmacodynamics. They've used both EEGs and the bispectral index monitoring for patients, and one initial group, they had healthy volunteers. These are almost all healthy volunteer studies I'm going to talk about for the next section here, uh, where they gave a 10-minute infusion of phosphopropyl. And the first group got 290 milligrams. The second group got 580 milligrams. And the third group got uh, 1,160 milligrams. And then they were tested for loss of consciousness and corneal reflex. So the first group, the lower-dose group, we'll call them 290 milligrams. They didn't get unconscious. No loss of consciousness was documented and they had what would be a problem with this drug, repeated in many of these studies, an unpleasant sensation of tingling and burning in the anal and genital areas lasting about five minutes. So unless you go under, you have this terrible burning paresthesia in your perineum that people feel a need to scratch, and can be a problem but in some procedures, like colonoscopy perhaps. <laughs> in the higher dose group, most of them displayed loss of consciousness within nine minutes after the start of the infusion and regain of consciousness after twenty-four minutes. So it gives you about a ten minute span where you're unconscious and you're able to do a procedure. So the ideal use for it would be a procedure that takes about that long. Again, one patient complained of that perineal anal genital paresthesias. They also use the same observer assessment alertness score, the scale from one to five that we used in the prior study that Rob talked about, where one is completely unresponsive to painful stimuli, such as a squeeze of the trapezius. And five is responds readily to his name spoken in normal tone, and it sort of scores in between. It kind of almost follows like the verbal part, the verbal and, uh, motor part of the uh, Glasgow coma score in a way. And they evaluated the score at different intervals in these patients. The low-dose group achieved a score of five, which isn't really out of it, in 25 minutes. The middle group at 63 minutes and the hydro dose at 112 minutes. So, the, how long it took them to recover varied depending on the dose. As far as hemodynamic effects, in a different group of volunteers, one subject, oh, in the same group, 500, the group in the middle group, the 580 group, had an elevated blood pressure throughout the study, and all the other study groups had a decrease in blood pressure ranging from 20 to 25 percent. Uh, and the blood pressure values reached their lowest level at about 20 minutes after the beginning of the infusion and returned to baseline at about an hour after the start of the infusion. There was also a slight increase in heart rate that went up with ascending doses as well. And heart rate reached this maximum value at about 12 minutes after the start of the infusion and returned to baseline at about 30 minutes. As far as oxygen monitoring in this group of subjects, they dropped to a minimum value of 94% in about 15 minutes, and all three patients in the highest dose, the 1160 milligram dose, uh, required um, supplemental oxygen, nasal cannula to keep their oxygen above 93%. So at higher doses, you can get desaturated, but they did not observe apnea per se in any of these group of volunteers who were given the drug. There was a slight rise in the PaCO2 in the ascending doses. The mean doses for the three groups were 38 pCO2, 42, and 47 so the higher dose seems to create some degree of respiratory insufficiency. Um, body temperature was monitored; there was no problem with this at all in any of the patients. There was also another study where they looked at different groups again with EEGs and abyss data. We talked about bispectral thing. Another nine male volunteers, um, and they tried to shoot for a constant rate or constant drug level of the drug, and unfortunately, they weren't able to do this using a. a a computer model, but they were better able to do this just by titrating up and down by the observer's score. Uh, they brought these patients back later to repeat the study with a continuous infusion, and they showed with the EEG that as you go under, the high-frequency alpha band, uh, multi-frequency, uh, goes down at about five minutes after the infusion, you shift to lower wavelengths, and as the propofol concentrations were dropped during the second 20 minutes of the study, it goes even further down. And uh, there was no burst suppression noted even after an hour of uh, infusion. And six patients dropped their bispectral readings from 90 uh, initially down to levels of 50 to 60, which for comparison purposes we just draw in the prior study is about where propofol and etomidate got most folks as well. Um, Apnea wasn't observed in the second group of su- uh, subjects, but supplemental oxygen was required for six of the nine patients are receiving um, the drug. And again, PCO2 was found to be higher in the group reaching In This group it went up to about 51 per- uh, millimeters of mercury versus 48%. So what about the issue of the phosphate and the formate that is released? Um, there were some studies were looked at this and from the page, they really weren't able to find that the levels got to any sort of higher levels that we were worried about. Um, although with a continuous, then these were all short-term infusions of one or two hours. Uh, if someone was going to be in the ICU, like Keith described under a constant infusion of this drug, which it hasn't really been approved for in that mode, I would imagine that you could possibly accumulate both phosphate and formate, and a similar syndrome to Pris, or something even different to Pris, might uh, evolve as well. Um, a lot of the other studies were uh, hemodynamics were repeated, and I'm, we're going to defer to these two studies where they actually use them in clinical situations, but um, their bottom line was that uh, they say this new term of monitored anesthesia care provides a valuable bridge between moderate sedation uh, and what was previously called procedural sedation general anesthesia. And in mid-December 2008, the FDA approved phosphorpofol for use in monitored anesthesia care settings. It's now manufactured by the ASI company, EISAI Corporation of North America. And the trade name was tra- changed from Aquavan to Lisendra. Um, and the FDA has mandated in its package insert that it be used only by, here's the quotation, persons trained in the administration of general anesthesia, which I take to mean persons who have some training in anesthesia, not necessarily anesthesiologists. Um, So they mentioned that the pulmonologists felt that it's safe to circumvent this requirement for trained anesthesia personnel, and they've written a letter to the FDA, and they uh, say, perhaps presciently, that other clinicians may join their chorus and petition the FDA for more liberal Labeling, so, of course, maybe here. So, amazingly, as it seems, this drug makes sense. If you throw out all those, you have all those volunteer studies of nine patients here and nine patients there. They had to throw out all those pharmacokinetic studies. Six studies had to be literally thrown out of the literature. What we're left with are two studies that were done before this drug was released, and we're going to review both of them. Um, they're both very similar. One is for bronchoscopy and one is for colonoscopy, two highly invasive procedures. And we're going to start off with Eric telling us about use of phosphopropofol for colonoscopy.
4: Uh, thank you, Zane. Uh, I reviewed the article entitled, A Randomized Double-Blind phase three Study of Phosphopropofol-Disodium for Sedation During Colonoscopy. Uh, published in the Journal of Clinical Gastroenterology, in May, June, 2010. I will state up front, in terms of conflict of interest, the lead author and one of the secondary authors are in the employ of a sci-medical research uh, maker of the drug. Reviewing the introduction, the point of this study was to compare the recommended dose of fospropofol, established by its Phase two trial, which is 6.5 milligrams per kilogram, to a lower dose of fospropofol. Two milligrams per kilogram, which they established was ineffective in their previous phase two trial. Uh, they also added a third arm to the study uh, using the daselam um, as a quote uh, sensitivity measure, but uh, did not make many comparisons uh, to that to the bosprophol. Um, as far as the study itself, uh, they randomized groups at multiple centers uh, across the United States. Uh, in groups of six, and did a ratio of three subjects at the high optimized dose, two at the lower dose, and added one uh, in each group of six uh, to use midazolam. Uh, The primary endpoint uh, was, uh, quote-unquote, successful sedation, uh, which was measured uh, by the Modified Observer's Assessment of Alertness and Sedation Scale. And they were looking for scores... uh, less than or equal to 4 after the administration of the sedative and completing the procedure without needing an alternative medication or requiring any ventilatory support. Uh, Assessments were made one minute before and after the initial pretreatment, which was given to all groups of fentanyl, and then every two minutes until the patient was alert. The secondary endpoints they were measuring was uh, one, completion without use of alternative medication, again, as stated in the primary endpoint. Two, reduced need for opiates. Uh, three, minimizing recall of the procedure. And four, improvement of willingness to have the procedure done again by patients. There were some additional endpoints they measured, such as number of analgesic doses, uh, number of supplemental doses such as study medication, cognitive assessments, uh, and patient and physician-related satisfaction as well as the depth of sedation. Uh, the patients they selected were all ASA uh, physical score of class 1 through 4. Uh, these were consented at the various centers. Patients needed to be older than 18 years old, uh, needed not to be pregnant by certain pregnancy tests, and use of birth control previous. Um, exclusion criteria were histories of allergies to any anesthetic opioid, benzodiazepine, or, quote, any contraindication relative to the use of fentanyl or midazolam, end quote. Uh, also excluded patients with difficult airways, monopathy mal- scores of 4 or 3 with a thyromental mental distance less than 4. Um, and also excluded patients, quote, clinically significant, who had a clinically significant abnormality in a 3-lead ECG. This was not specified. Um, the medications were uh, mixed up by a pharmacist in uh, identical syringes and identical volumes. The phosphopropyl solution is aqueous, uh, so as not to be able to be distinguished from the other medications. Uh, the protocol was such that the patients initially received 50 micrograms of fentanyl, put on 4 liters of oxygen, and then 5 minutes later, the study drug was administered. Either the high dose, the low dose, or the um, Following this uh, Supplemental doses at 25 percent of the original dose, or simply one milligram of a daslam were given every four minutes to a max of three doses. If they couldn't achieve a sedation score MOAAS of less than 4, this was considered a failure. And a single additional dose of uh, 25 micrograms of fentanyl was allowed after 10 minutes, but only for pain. Uh, looking at the different groups among the study, the demographics were generally similar. Uh, although the daselam group had slightly more patients uh, greater than 65, and uh, the low dose phosphoprofall group had slightly lower percentage of P1 or healthier subjects. Uh, in terms of results, uh, or actually, I'm sorry. Uh, looking at the patient uh, population, uh, they started with an N of 345. 31 were excluded up front, 15 withdrawn for consent, for an discretion, 5 for quote-unquote other reasons, and 3 that exceeded a 14-day screening period. 2 also did not meet inclusion criteria, and 2 finally because the target number had been reached. So this meant that they had 102 patients in the low dose, 160 patients in the high dose, and 52 in the DAS arm. Um, what they found was that uh, for the midazolam group, uh, 69% of the patients had a successful uh, procedure, uh, meaning that they didn't need more than three doses and were able to maintain sedation uh, scores less than uh, four or less. Um, colonoscopy, in general, was initiated after two supplemental doses in the high-dose group compared with only uh, 12% of uh the patients in the low-dose group, 76% were able to get uh, to a good level of sedation in the high-dose group. Um, Only 12% of the patients required uh, alternative uh, medications in the high-dose group. Also, the proportion of patients requiring supplemental analgesic medication uh, was significantly lower in the phosphopropyl group uh, at 6.5 milligrams, the high-dose. And all these p-values compared uh, between the high-dose group and the low-dose group were significant with p-values less than 0.001. Interestingly, the midazolam arm was sort of left out in the breeze, and p-values weren't made for comparisons. There there does appear to be some trend data. Let's see. They also had uh, six patients with uh, sedation scores of 0 to 1. So these are patients that uh, went into two-deep sedation. Uh, and These average lasted about 0.3 minutes. Um, these were patients in the high-dose phosphorfol group. Um, there was no significant differences between the cognitive memory uh, ability between, among the different treatment groups um, at screening, but was superior in the low-dose phosphoprofoil group. And in general, patient satisfaction was similar among all groups, but physician satisfaction was significantly greater among the high-dose phosphopropofol group. In terms of safety, uh, there were no deaths. There was one patient in the high-dose group that had hypotension. uh, and One patient had lower abdominal tenderness, which led to discontinuation of the procedure. Uh, Two subjects in the low-dose group did have hypotension, but that did not stop the procedure. There was one subject uh, in the high-dose group that had hypoxemia, but this resolved with verbal stimulation. Uh, there were two that required airway assistance, generally a chin left in the high-dose group, and one had hypoxemia after they had, quote-unquote, failed, i.e. they had four doses of the treatment drug. There were patients, as mentioned before, that had uh, paritis and paresthesias uh, within five minutes, and that lasted on average about one to two minutes. So, um, in short, looking at this data... They uh, did an excellent job of sort of recapitulating what they did in the phase two study, which is that the dose that works, the high dose, uh, 6.5 milligrams per kilogram dose, uh, is far more effective than the dose they showed that wasn't effective, the 2 milligrams per kilogram dose. Um, There were some confounders in terms of the fentanyl sedative effect, but since this is sort of common practice, it seemed to be reasonable. uh, I think they make a good point there. Um other than that, it was interesting that they didn't uh, bother to calculate any of the p-values between the uh, midazline group, uh, which they did show some, at least some trended uh, improvements, but it wasn't clear that they had clinically significant uh,
3: differences.
0: Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. If they were wanting to prove sort of the, what I think is a concept of non-inferiority between the two drugs is, is this drug as good as what we used before for this procedure. What we used before is generally acknowledged is a mixture of Versed and um, often another opiate like fentanyl. Uh, They used a pretty low dose of fentanyl as sort of their entry way, but given that as it may, they were able to successfully do the colonoscopy with with the old method, midazolam, and 69% uh, versus in the appropriate dose of cospropofol, if we can refer to that, 6.5 milligram per kilo, 87%. 87%. So although that number seems bigger, you're right, the, the data are there that somebody can easily crunch and get a, whether or not that p-value crosses the 0.05 mandate for significant difference or not. Granted, there were lower overall numbers. There's half the number of patients in the modazolam group compared to the uh, uh, low-dose uh, phosphoprofoil group and one-third as much as, as the high-dose group. So the numbers weren't matched so wonder if someone does the math there. Does it come out to be the same or not? Um, I think just eyeballing it, I can we can say it seemed to work. The patients were happy. The doctors were happy. You had to do a couple of airway maneuvers, which may be important. If you're over-aggressive administering this drug as a colonoscopist, you can not run around to the head of the bed and start managing the airway or leaving the colonoscope you know in the patient. So often these are done with certified nurse anesthetists in suites, as a combination to provide two providers in this scenario, and that may be a safe way to go. And the gastroenterologists have indeed written a letter, again, somewhat uh, disturbed by the new ruling really, about this and saying that we have done other drugs like propofol safely, and this drug may be one we can give safely to. So the data are still out, but it seems to work in certain hands of certain gastroenterologists and a narrow confine of the study. We're gonna look at a study which I think we're gonna find amazingly similar to this study done in the bronchoscopy suite. And then we have Mark to talk about that. Thank you Zen. So I'll be reviewing
5: a study uh, titled a phase three randomized double band study to assess the efficacy and safety of phosphorus by sodium injection for moderate sedation in patients undergoing flexible bronchoscopy. Uh, this is an article that was published in Chest in January of 2009, and the lead author, uh, sorry, the lead author, is uh, Gerald Silvestri. Um, and so, as uh, Zane mentioned, this is very similar to the article that uh, we just heard reviewed by Aaron. Um, the the study uh, essentially they set the scene uh, in exactly the same way, saying uh, there are problems with the agents that we have available. Specifically, they mentioned that Madaz has variable metabolism, uh, multiple drug-drug interactions. Propofol, uh, the uh, state has an increased risk of cardiopulmonary depression. You get the injection pain that we've heard mentioned and then the risk of contamination. And they say maybe phosphopropofol is going to be an answer to all of these problems. Um, so this is a double-blind, randomized control trial. Um, interestingly, they don't describe the blinding or the randomization, but we'll assume that that, that was done appropriately. Um, the population they looked at specifically was uh, people 18 years of age or older. They had to have an ASA score uh, between 1 and 4. Um, and uh, essentially, this uh, this uh, is actually quite liberal. Uh, so it's anywhere from being totally healthy, uh, 18-year-old kid going from bronchoscopy, to someone who, quote-unquote, has severe disease, which poses a constant threat to life. So it they didn't really pull any punches uh, in this study. And I, I think that's important because as a phase three trial, they're looking at expanding this to larger groups of people. And I think a big part of their mandate is they want to confirm the effectiveness of the medication, but maybe even more so, they want to want to assess the safety as well. Um, and so they're looking at potentially a, a fairly sick population. Um, Lastly, um, their inclusion criteria required that uh, all females had to have a negative pregnancy test, just like the last study, and they had to have some form of acceptable birth control uh, for the last month. They excluded patients who uh, had allergies to other anesthetic agents, for obvious reasons. Uh, They excluded patients who had not maintained NPO status, again, very reasonable. Patients who had an abnormal clinically significant ECG, which they didn't define, um, or who had used another medica- investigational medication within the last month uh, were excluded as well. And finally, patients who were assessed to have a difficult airway, and that was done with a Mallampati score or just at the discretion of the clinician that this guy might be someone difficult to intubate, uh, they, were, they were excluded from the trial. Specifically, the outcomes they looked at were, again, very similar to the last study. Um, they looked at uh, a primary outcome of sedation success, um, and that was defined using the same score that we've heard about, the five-point the five score. Um, they defined as being sedated uh, as four or less uh, at, at three different measurements throughout the procedure. Um, and they had, they had to not require any alternate sedation and also not require any airway intervention. Um, and they specifically mentioned intubation or bag valve mask. If they just required a little bit of stimulation, then that, that was considered to be okay. Secondary outcomes were treatment success, which is very tightly linked. And essentially they just said, in addition to all of those things, could the clinician complete the procedure that, that they set out to, to complete? Uh, they also looked at uh, the patient's and clinician's willingness to use propofol again and willingness to have uh, this propofol again. They looked at patients' recollection of the procedure. Uh, They looked at the number of repeat doses needed. um, And then they looked at patient and physician satisfaction. And then finally, and I think probably most importantly, they they looked at adverse events. And they specifically mentioned apnea, hypoxia, bradycardia, hypotension, and the need to intervene. So what did they do? Um, so basically they assessed patients for eligibility and uh, using the inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, mentioned earlier uh, and found 290 patients. They only needed to exclude 30, 34 from that group and to my eye looked like for very reasonable reasons. Um, so then that left with 256 patients that were randomized. Again, it's not explained exactly how they randomized them. Um, also not explained how things were blinded. But then they would, then they split them into two groups. Everyone in either group got uh, oxygen at four liters by nasal cannula. They got a dose of 50 of fentanyl up front, uh, and then they were treated with propofol lidocaine. From that point, uh, people were divided into again a low dose group at two milligrams per kilogram, or a high dose group uh, at six six and a half milligrams per kilogram, and uh, and. Although this was this was uh, after randomization, there was a there was a fairly big difference um, in the number of patients in each group. So it was one hundred and three versus one hundred and fifty-three, um, which I wasn't uh, wasn't able to find a good explanation for that.
0: Which is almost exactly the ratio in the prior study, which yeah. was also supported by the drug company. Yeah,
5: so something it's like interesting. That, uh, a
0: three to two ratio of randomization, block randomization, or something like that must have been Could be. done.
5: that makes sense. That makes yeah. sense mm mm-hmm. um, so at that point all patients were monitored with ecg pulse oximetry and blood pressure and were monitored throughout the procedure interestingly they did not uh, use tidal co2 monitoring um, which i thought actually would have been an important thing to do uh, in these patients given that we're looking for adverse events and one of the big events we're looking for uh, is hypoventilation um, and i think a lot of us would use that as a So a drop in the Sats is a surrogate for their loss of protective airway reflexes, because I don't think we have a really we have a better way of measuring that. Um, And so, particularly in people who we're giving oxygen to, it may take them a while to desat uh, before they they so they may lose protective reflexes earlier. Um, We may not notice if they if they start breathing again within you know the four or five six minutes it takes to desat. They're not on a lot of oxygen. I think the
2: Four liters, nasal cannula. I don't think a nasal end tidal CO2 would be accurate because it right. measures the oxygen instead uh, of measuring the expiration. So I don't know if with bronchoscopy with a nasal cannula, I don't know if you can do that physically. It may have been why, I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, you can certainly stick both of the two devices, and I know there's some combination devices now that both provide oxygen and do tidal CO2. I think it's a little different because when you instrument their airway, gums create like a VQ mismatch when you get out one lung and you know absolutely so but yeah would have been nice but they didn't do it
5: and then also I think they also are I mean you could argue it's even better because they have a camera in there so they can say this guy's breathing because I can Mm -hmm. see them breathing Mm -hmm. so the only issue would be is if there were times when they didn't have the scope in yet maybe um, we may miss something but again I think theoretical and I think this is still reasonable uh, just something that I I thought was interesting to comment on Mm -hmm. Um, From that point, uh, each uh, group was given an initial dose, either two or six and a half milligrams per kilogram, Uh, and then they were assessed with this alertness score. Uh, If they were appropriately sedated, and that was defined as a score of uh, less than four, um, then uh, they were able to start the procedure. If their score was greater than four, um, then uh, they were were to give repeat doses at 25% of the concentration, so a fairly significant reduction in the initial dose. And this could be done every four minutes. Um, Once the procedure began, they entered the maintenance phase. Um, At this point, uh, a score of greater than three um, was uh, required a a repeat dose, and this could again be done Q4 minutes. I believe this was also the 25% reduced dose, but that wasn't explicitly stated. And then again, if you had three scores of greater than three, then that was considered a failure. Um, At that point, they could add a second drug, which would typically be midazolam. So, what did they find? Um, essentially, and, and this is it's not, not a big shock, is if you used a higher dose of, of the medication, you had a higher proportion of sedation success. So, uh, 80, uh, 89% uh, versus 27%, uh, in the six and 6.5% versus uh, 2%. Uh, treatment success was also higher, uh, so it was 91% versus 41%. Um, the need to to issue uh, supplemental doses um, was, i sorry, the, the group not requiring supplemental doses uh, was 56% in the high-dose group versus 7% in the low-dose group. Uh, and then finally, the, the group that uh, needed midazolam um, was 8% in the high-dose group compared to 58% in the low-dose group. And I think all those things are very intuitive. If we're getting more drug, we're gonna get a deeper sedation. Um, another important outcome that they mentioned is uh, timing. So they measure the time from the start of sedation until the patient was alert again. And what they found was the, the mean time was 16 minutes in the high-dose group, compared to 14 and a half minutes in the low-dose group. So a difference of one and a half minutes. Um, they also measure the time from when the procedure was completed until the patient was alert. And that was five and a half minutes versus three minutes. Um, and then finally, they measured uh, from the time the procedure was completed until the patient was ready to go. Uh, and that was eight and a half minutes versus eight minutes. So all of those times to my mind are, are pretty comparable, you know, plus or minus two minutes, um, which is pretty impressive, which to me suggests that even if you're using these higher doses, it doesn't, you're not gonna be hanging around for a significantly longer amount of time, which would be one potential downside. Um, now, another question that I had was, are these people getting too deep? And so I, I think there's one of the ways they're measuring this is with the scale, uh, but they don't give us all the data. So they say that the measure they do give us, though, is people who are in deep sedation, uh, quote, after, after the first dose was 3, 3.7% in the high-dose group versus 1.5% uh, in the low-dose group which I think makes sense, but th- what they don't tell us is throughout the whole procedure are people getting into this deep sedation, um, and they, they didn't have that data, which I think is unfortunate, especially given the fact that one of the arguments is that this is supposed to be a more titratable medication, but we don't have any, any information on how the clinicians were actually able to titrate it, um, so I, I think that's unfortunate. Um MD satisfaction scores and patient satisfaction scores were higher uh, with the high dose group as well, um, and and the willingness to have a repeat procedure was uh, was also higher uh, in the high dose group. Um, in Table five, they uh, they outline the the adverse events that they had, um, and most of these were fairly minor. Um, there there were there was a higher proportion. Um, of patients uh, in the high dose group uh, who did have an, an adverse event or needed airway assistance. The majority of those uh, were patients who just needed an increase in their oxygen flow. Um, that said, there was one patient who required uh, uh, bag uh ventilation, and he turned out to be quite a sick guy who had significant CHF and, and a couple other comorbidities. But I, mean, I think that it's significant it's the need to actually bag someone suggests that. He was significantly deeper and for more than probably a minute, um, although we're not given that that information. Um, And so where does that leave us? Um, So my overall interpretation of this is if you give the high dose, you're more likely to have sedation success. You're more likely to be able to complete the procedure that you're sedating for. Uh, You're less likely to need supplemental doses. You're also less likely to need to add a second agent, at least in the confines of this study. The times to the patient being alert, the times to the patient completing the procedure, the time to discharge, I think are all very uh, very close with, with either way you go, it's plus or minus two minutes. So I don't think it's something is going to slow clinicians down. Uh, the doctors seem to like it, the patients seem to like it. The concerns I have are with the adverse events. Um, given the supplemental oxygen, given the, uh, not, not being given as much detail as I, as I would like to have, to really be able to assess this. I think it's tough to to use this to as a as a phase three trial to say this is definitely a safe drug. I do think it provides some evidence to go in that direction, but definitely not con- conclusive. Also, I don't think it answers answers the question or gives any support to the argument that this is more titratable. And although we have been given some physiologic arguments for that, I don't think this study addresses that.
0: Yeah, so another study, I think the difference between this and the prior one is that the patients tended to be older in the bronchoscopy group. They tended to be sicker with at least respiratory and cardiovascular problems more so than the GI group, and they didn't make any attempt to compare it to diazepam right. or, or, or Versed or any of the uh, benzos. Um, but they seemed to achieve success, and again, with a percentage of patients in what I think we will call the right dose group needing airway Assistance of some type being on the order of about 20%. So just because it's the patient, you give this drug and someone needs a chin lift or supplemental oxygen doesn't mean you've failed this or you've created some sort of problem, the, the right answer is, at least from a QA perspective, is that you responded to it appropriately and you gave them a chin lift or stopped or reduced your dosing and even in some cases went so far as the bag valve mask. But none of these patients in what now is about 300 patients of phosphopropyl in either of these procedural sedation scenarios needed any uh, intubation. But I think intuitively we can all say the skill to do that is probably vital to to giving this drug and, and the other ones. And I think that's a skill that all emergency physicians have. Um, I'll just read one letter to the editor that came out in response to this study and the reply. Basically, I'll summarize it for you if someone had written in uh, uh, really about an accompanying editorial that said, based on the available data, phosphoprofoil appears to be safe for moderate sedation and should not require anesthesia monitoring. And he pointed out that the package insert says, well, it should only be given by persons trained in the administration of general anesthesia and not involved in the conduct of diagnostic or therapeutic procedure. And the uh, editor of that thing wrote back and said, I'm in agreement with that. Patients need to be continuously monitored both during the sedation and the recovery process. Look for signs of all the things we worry about, hypotension, apnea, obstruction, desaturation. Um, And however, he said, I don't believe, however, that it should be administered only by persons trained in the administration of general anesthesia. Um, Can be used safely for moderate sedation with Without anesthesia monitoring, um, although that's going to be the controversial area. Um, he goes on to say, I do not think physicians who use propofol should be able to manage the airway in the event the patient has a temporary state of deep sedation. In my opinion, most pulmonologists have this school, skill to do this. So he was like saying, Well, we, we can manage the airway, that's what we do. Um, and the other letter that I have, to the editor, was the retraction from the three journals, the, all the data that they had to do because of lab errors. So where do we stand today? Well, this drug was approved in 2008, and the dose, as you might imagine from the two studies, is an initial dose of phosphopropyl is 6.5 milligrams per kilogram as a dose, with the caveats that you shouldn't assume that the patient weighs more than 90 kilograms or less than 60 kilograms. So if they weigh less than that, you should use those cutoff numbers as your guideline. So we're talking about initial dose of about 450 milligrams and then you can supplement those doses with 1.6 milligram per kilogram which is 25% of the initial dose as needed to maintain or establish the depth of anesthesia using whatever method observation score you you need to uh, procedure it's not yet recommended for labor delivery nursing although they do recommend that it's administered by a person who is trained in General Anesthesia Administration, who is not involved in the diagnostic or therapeutic procedure, and currently approved for monitored anesthesia care. Again, that new term that I think we'll see more and more um, popping up. Uh, just summary, internally, this drug was approved uh, in the last month by our Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, which I sit on and chair. It was only approved for use in the situation where propofol itself wasn't available, but given that propofol is becoming hard to get because three companies